Jesus is the voice of truth. He is the truth. He's the living truth, the living word. And the Bible is also the voice of truth because it's the word of Christ, the word of God. And so to listen to the Bible is to listen to the voice of truth, is to listen to the voice of Jesus. So if you would, turn to Revelation, Revelation chapter 13. And we'll listen to the voice of truth uh, from this passage this morning. Revelation is just one of the books we're going through right now. So we go through several books at a time that in various ways are meant to help equip us for whatever challenges lie ahead. Uh, My heart is to prepare us for what's to come. I don't know exactly what's to come or what God's timetable is, but it certainly appears um, that things are changing in our country. Attitudes toward uh, Christianity, um, quote, tolerance for various things, it's changing. And therefore, the Bible speaks to the reality that uh, things can change and we shouldn't be surprised if they change and we shouldn't be surprised if they get harder. And the Bible speaks to that because the Bible seeks to warn us and to prepare us. And Revelation 13 is one of those passages that is intended to do just that. Um, we've all seen children who've been afraid and they've you know, thought there was a monster under their bed or whatever and they've run to their parent. And I thought about this passage, and there are passages like this that um, if you just read them, and if you really think about what they say, they can be very scary passages. There's a, there's a sense in which there's not a scarier book in the Bible than, or in the world than the Bible, if you really understand the kinds of things it talks about. And yet, why would God tell us things that, on the surface, seem to be very scary. Uh, It's not just to cause us to run away in fear, it's to cause us to run to him. Because we tend to think, there's no danger out there, there's nothing I really need to be concerned about, I don't really need to maintain a close walk with God, I'll be fine, everything's fine, there's just, there's no real danger. And yet when we really begin to see what the Bible has to say, we realize, no, there are real dangers in the world. And the Bible talks about them very openly and very honestly. And it's not meant to strike us with fear as the children of God. It's meant to cause us to run to God and to be prepared for whatever those things might be. And so I just wanted to kind of frame this chapter as we read it together this morning in light of that, because I think it's important that we realize that, yes, Uh, The Bible does have some things in it that can be very, very scary when we think about it, and yet it's not intended to strike fear. The voice of truth says, do not be afraid. But the implication is there are things that could terrify us apart from Jesus. But in light of Jesus, we don't have to be afraid. We can trust him with our lives. And so let me read for us Revelation chapter 13. Again, let me just remind you, the book of Revelation is a picture book. It pictures for us Jesus and spiritual realities and history in various ways and the future in various ways. It's not meant to be taken uh, literal in many cases. It's meant to picture for us literal truth, though. And we're at a point in Revelation where 
I believe it's talking about the kinds of things that are uh, getting our attention that the return of Christ is near. That's the way I understand what's happening in Revelation 13 is the things that are happening in this chapter are pictured for us in such a way as to to say uh, before the return of Christ, these kinds of things will be taking place and it will be the kinds of things that will say, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. Okay, so let me just read this chapter for us. In verse one, it says, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb, in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that He even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number is that of a man and his number is 666. This is the word of God. All right, what I'd like to do, obviously there's a lot in this chapter, and we're not going to be able to spend a lot of time on all of these things, but I'd like to talk about the the main characters involved, uh, the main events that are uh, involved, and especially how uh, this passage talks about the saints, talks about believers 
in this context. And hopefully that will be an encouragement to us because ultimately, though times may get very, very dark, uh, God does not change. His promises do not change. And we can trust him in the dark. We can trust him with whatever is to come. And that is what is meant by or intended by this passage for us ultimately is to warn us of dark days and yet prepare us for those at the same time. There are those um, that I respect that are godly men who don't see the book of Revelation and don't see this passage the same. There are some who would say everything in this chapter has already happened in the first century and we don't have to worry about it. There are others who would say this chapter hasn't happened yet, but we're not going to be here when it does. We're going to be raptured out before all this happens. So far, I haven't been convinced of either of those things. So far, I believe we're going to be here, meaning the church will be here, and that this passage is intended to warn us and prepare us for that. That doesn't mean all of us will be there. It just means the church will still be there, at least from my view at this point. And so let me just touch on some things and then hopefully make some applications that will be encouraging to you this morning. Number one, the characters involved. It talks about a dragon in verse one, the dragon who stood on the sand of the seashore. Now we know that the dragon represents the devil. If you look back in chapter uh, 12, it tells us in verse 17, actually even earlier than that in verse nine, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And it says at the end of chapter 12 that in verse 17, he was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, which means believers in Jesus, the saints. And so chapter 12, chapter 13 is a continuation of chapter 12. In chapter 12, we see what you might call the cosmic uh, battle where um, Jesus is born to Mary, and it says the dragon seeks to destroy uh, the child of the woman. Um, But he's not able to do that, and it says this son is caught up into heaven. So it's a very short, brief um, reference to the life of Christ. When he was born, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead, and he ascended back into heaven. And as a result of that, Satan was defeated by Jesus on the cross. And it says Satan was thrown out of heaven, so to speak, thrown down to the earth, and he's angry. And he's going after the people of God. And Revelation 13 says there are two uh, primary ways that Satan attacks the people of God and, in a sense, seeks to destroy all people uh, through force and through falsehood through uh, military might or oppression of various kinds or, or suffering of various kinds and through deception. Satan uses both. And so ultimately, I believe Revelation 13 is talking about in one sense what Satan has been doing since Christ ascended back to heaven. But in another sense, things that are going to be incredibly intensified right before Jesus returns. And so the dragon who stands on the, the seashore, and sand is often a picture of multitudes of people. He's called the ruler over 
the world. He stands on the seashore, and it, there's a sense in which um, he calls forth a beast from the sea. And the, the sea was a picture of chaos, but it's also a picture of the Gentile nations. And so as you read through this, you realize that uh, in verse 3 of chapter 12, uh, the great dragon has seven heads and ten horns. In verse 1, it says the beast has seven heads and ten horns. And there's a sense in which uh, this person that it's talking about, and it's kind of a fluid image. I mean, most people would say this is, this is a kind of government or empire, but it's also the one who's at the head of that government or empire. And the personification, this person, is, is like the incarnation of Satan, so to speak. It's that kind of similar situation. And you actually see uh, similarities between this beast in terms of the personification of the person embodied there and different aspects of the story of Christ, which we'll get into uh, eventually. But the beast from the sea is a reference to um, the Antichrist, I believe. And yet, a lot of people would say, no, I think it's a reference to uh, first century Rome and Nero. Because at the end of the chapter, you talk about 666, and they'll say, uh, Nero, Caesar, adds up to 666. Protestant reformers, uh, most of them Calvin and Luther and others, believe that this was the papacy. And for hundreds of years, they would argue that this was actually the Roman Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Empire, and at the head, the Pope. My perspective is those things fit in the vision, but they're simply foreshadowings of the ultimate manifestation in uh, a person at the end of time, right before Christ comes back, that uh, John refers to, in 1 John as the Antichrist, when he says, you know that Antichrist is coming, and indeed, there are already Antichrists in the world. But there is an ultimate Antichrist that is on the way, and I think that's what is being talked about here. But there's another beast who appears to be an associate of the beast from the sea, which is the beast from the land. And the beast from the land is defined later on in the book of Revelation, as the false prophet. And you, as you read through this, you realize that he exercises power, but he exercises power in order to get people to worship the first beast. And so he does what he does to encourage people, and indeed in various ways to force people, so to speak, to actually follow and worship the first beast. Now, obviously, I'm going very quickly because we can't spend a lot of time on these things, but I just want to give you a taste of what's going on here and try to help us to apply it. Obviously, the saints are the believers in Jesus. Later on in Revelation 14, verse 12, it says, here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So when it talks about saints in Revelation 13, it's talking about believers in Jesus who are trusting and loving as God calls us to. And obviously in verse 8, it talks about the lamb. And the lamb has been spoken of before already as the one who actually rules with God over all things. And he was slain to purchase men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so he is 
uh, the Lord Jesus, the one whom we worship. And so it's very important to realize that all of these are a part of this picture. And even though in the chapter, uh, the beasts seem to be uh, large and foreboding, just like Goliath in the song. The truly large uh, person in this chapter is Jesus. And he's the one who will be our defender and our protector. But you could say, um, in a sense, that if we think about, so how should this affect how we look at things that are going on in our lives and maybe going on in the future? We should realize there is a devil in the details. We talk about the devil in the details. It's usually used in a little different way in terms of, you know, this looks like a simple thing, but when you get down to the details, it's really a difficult thing. What I'm saying is there's a devil behind the details of what's going on in our country right now and across the world. And that's the implication of what we see in this chapter. Interestingly enough, many of you probably heard the chatter over President Biden's speech when he made a speech in Philadelphia. And he talked about MAGA Republicans and how there was this uh, kind of... um, conflict going on between Democrats and Republicans, and and people noted the, the context for it. He was standing in, um, in Philadelphia making this speech, uh, and the background was red, and people on Twitter and all over the place were commenting on the red background, and the kinds of things they were saying was Biden shocks viewers with hellish red background for polarizing speech. Uh, One man said this weird red background uh, was like giving a stump speech from Dante's Inferno. Uh, The image of Biden looking angry with clenched fists in front of the hellish red background. The the point I'm making is people immediately began to look at not only what he was saying, but the backdrop for it. And my only point at this time is not to make a political point. I'm making the point that what's going on here in Revelation 13 is it's showing us the true backdrop for what is happening in the world apart from Christ. There is a hellish backdrop. There, there is a satanic backdrop. There is a red curtain behind all of it. There is a devil in the details. And it's important for us to understand that lest we just kind of go through life oblivious to the, the real spiritual dangers that there are. The Bible is very honest about that in so many ways. And so it's important for us to know that, not to be afraid of those things, but to to make us appropriately sober in the world in which we live and appropriately diligent in our spiritual lives uh, because that is meant to truly be the impetus for it. Well, let me just talk a little bit about the kinds of things that are happening in this chapter. And this is point number two, the the key activities that I want to highlight. Um, Before I do that, though, there's one scripture I I meant to mention. 1 Peter 5. This is meant to be an encouragement in light of just what I said. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Peter 5, 6, it says this. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he, he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. That's what I was just mentioning about the whole issue of soberness. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. And why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
Now, the reality is Satan is not omnipresent. So that doesn't mean Satan is following all of us around personally. But it means that he does have demons and he does have a world system that he utilizes. So there's a sense in which the devil is after all of us seeking to devour who he can in that sense. And that's why it says we need to be of sober spirit. We need to be on the alert in light of those spiritual realities. Then it says, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So how is he seeking to devour us? Through suffering. Just like he sought to devour Job through suffering. He wanted Job to curse God by taking away his children, by taking away his property, by putting him through suffering. And Peter says, be aware that through suffering, the devil is going to want to lead you into unbelief and, and to cause you to curse God and die, so to speak. But God wants you to hold firm to your faith no matter what you have to suffer and to trust him for his love, which is what we sang about this morning. It goes on to say, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, let me highlight the uh, different things that are going on, the key activities in this passage. And the first thing is the interesting thing about three different times it talks about this beast, this first beast from the sea, having a fatal wound and being healed. So it's obviously a very important, significant thing that happens in the chapter. And so, excuse me, in verse 3 it says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. Verse 12, it talks about um, the first beast, excuse me, the second beast exercising authority in the presence of the first beast and making the earth worship the one whose fatal wound was healed. And then in verse 14, again, worshiping an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And so it appears that this beast, which is both um, a government empire, so to speak, indeed a worldwide one at this point, but also has a personal head that we would call the Antichrist, evidently dies and comes back to life, or at least appears to die and come back to life. There's different discussions on what the implication of the Greek is there. But there's no doubt that Satan wants to picture uh, his incarnation of himself as doing what Jesus did, dying and coming back to life, all as a part of the deception a incredible um, attempt at deceiving the world. And the reality is it does say that the Antichrist, in light of that, will gain rule over the world. It says in verse 2, the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Doesn't, doesn't God reign on the, on the throne? He does. He reigns over everything. And yet there is a throne 
over this world that Satan occupies. The Bible says he is the ruler of this world. God is the ruler over him, but he still rules this world. And uh, it says in 1 John that this world lies in the power of the evil one. And that's why I say he seeks to devour who he can in all kinds of ways. And yet the Antichrist will be followed, as it says in verse 3, by the whole earth. Verse 7, it says authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And as a result, he will have the opportunity and he will have the heart, so to speak, to try to extinguish all believers. That's why it says in verses 5 through 7, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. was given to him and he opened his mouth in blasphemies or slanders against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. What does overcome mean? It means to kill them. It means to make significant progress in trying to extinguish them. It says in Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus warns us, he says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. All nations. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 is what we see actually being played out in Revelation chapter 13. But as I said, the world will worship the Antichrist and the, the prophet, um, the second beast, will do lying wonders, so to speak. It says he will call down fire from heaven. He will show great signs in order to deceive people into worshiping the beast. Uh, the Lord Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, for false Christ. And false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect, which means the elect will not be deceived. But they're so great and so powerful and so convincing that the world will believe. The good news is that, well, let me just back up once. There's one other part of this. Is This is at the end of the chapter. The whole issue of the mark of the beast, which uh, there's, there's a debate over what that is. Some people think it's not even literal. Some people think it's just figurative. It just refers to the fact that those who follow the beast will be convinced in their minds and they will do with their hands whatever the beast says. That's the way some people take it. Other take it as this is a re- reference to Nero in the first century. Other think... Others think it's going to be something that plays out in the future where there is some kind of literal mark of some kind on our bodies one way or another. I believe it's going to be some kind of um, clear indication that you're following the Antichrist. It's going to be some kind of clear testimony to your loyalty to the Antichrist one way or another. And I believe that every Christian living at that time will understand that. That nobody as a believer is going to accidentally take the mark of the beast. It will be so very, very clear what is being called on 
a person to do. And as Christians, um, if we are here at that time, as I think we will be, um, we will not be duped by that. We will not be deceived by that. We will know what is going on. And that's why the Lord Jesus said, um, the things that are going to happen before he comes back are like uh, the leaves of, of a fig tree. He says, when you see the leaves start to come out, you know summer is near. So you too, when you see these, these things happening, know that your redemption draweth nigh. Um, I believe God will let his people know that these are the things that he has prophesied would happen right before the return of Christ. So that's part of the whole picture, but it's a temporary thing. When it says 42 months, that was an understood way of saying that it's only brief, it's only temporary, and it actually reflects on another time of suffering in the days of the Jewish people right before Christ came under um, a Syrian leader who tried to destroy the worship of the Jews. And that length of time was about 42 months when he persecuted the Jews. Nero's persecution of Christians was about 42 months. And so it came to be an understood period of time for intense yet brief uh, persecution of the people of God. One of the interesting things to me uh, as I think about what's going on in our, our uh, world today is the whole issue of how everything's going digital. And you've probably read and heard a lot of different things that are going on. Um, but there's, there's a big push toward getting basically everything digital and getting everyone to have a digital ID. And it's really interesting the kinds of things that people are saying about this. Um, they talk about it in terms of what is called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And the Fourth Industrial Revolution, as Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum would say, uh, this revolution will lead to a fusion of our physical, our digital, and our biological identities coming together. Uh, someone has said this digital identity determines what products, services, and, mis- and information we can access or conversely, what is closed off to us. Someone else said this uh, digital currency or ID, uh, actually currency in this case, I guess, so there's both the ID issue and the currency issue. This digital currency will permit better traceability of payments and money flow and also explore the possibility of setting conditions on permitted terms of use of a given unit of currency. And they give an illustration. They say, won't it be great if you can control what your kids spend their money on. They can't buy that candy at the store. You can set the digital currency to forbid them from being able to spend money at the store. And then they go on, they go on to say, you can come up with hundreds of other similar uses. And I'm sure you can. Uh, someone else said, our goal is to enable all life situations with this digital ID. Someone else talked about, and this was with the World Economic Forum, about a biometric bracelet and how this biometric bracelet would measure your blood pressure, your heart rate, and your brain, brain activity 24 hours a day. And then they said this, you, and he's talking about, uh, imagine this taking place in North Korea, this biometric bracelet. You listen to a speech on the radio by the great leader, in quotes, and they know what you actually feel. You can clap your hands and smile, but if you're angry, they know you'll be in the gulag 
tomorrow morning. Obviously, um, the reason why I put that image up there is because George Orwell in 1984 talks about Big Brother is watching you. Big Brother knows all that you're doing, knows what you're buying and selling, knows who you're talking to. And they even have in the book Thought Police. And so I'm relating this to what it says about the fact that uh, the mark of the beast would be necessary for buying and selling. Um, more and more in our world, there's something called ESG scores. And more and more companies and corporations are adopting the standard of ESG, which stands for environmental, social, and governance. And it's very much about um, corporations who basically invest in social causes appropriately and submit to various government mandates appropriately and, and um, you know, get on board with climate change issues appropriately, those corporations will be supported. But those who don't have a bad ESG score will be cut off from various resources and will not be supported. So, to me, Revelation 13, um, you could argue for the first time in history, if we understand, if I understand what it's saying here rightly, for the first time in history, the kinds of things that are talked about there are beginning to be actually possible for every person on the planet to be basically required or called upon to show allegiance to this one person. It's something to think about. Uh, a lot of people would say, you know, uh, we're, we're a long way away from something like that happening, and we very well could be. But there are people who are saying the kinds of things we're talking about now, uh, we'd like them to be in place by 2030. And they're working very, very hard to try to make that date. And so maybe it's not as far off in the future in some respects as we might think. And so... All of this is just to say that when it says at the end of Daniel, uh, knowledge will increase at the end of time, technology is exploding. And what people are able to do is just amazing with AI and all kinds of things. And so um, that could be um, what we might um, see happening here in the book of Revelation. Well, the implication is it will get significantly worse before it gets infinitely better. Things will get worse. And um, the book 1984, I've not read the book. I've, I've listened to a summary of it. I've heard people talk about it and those kinds of things. And to me, it's just a reminder of the fact that um, when people deny God, there is no God over the state anymore. The state becomes God. And the state requires everyone to look to the state for what they need. And the state, though maybe having good intentions initially, will ultimately um, degrade into totalitarianism. Why would that be? It's because of our sinful hearts. It's because that's the natural progression of sin. It gets worse and worse. It doesn't get better. Uh, you don't uh, reject God and develop a utopia you develop, you, you reject God, and things get worse. That's the way it, it works. 
And so um, it's just a reminder of the fact that uh, Jesus did say, um, you'll be hated by every nation. Things will be dark and difficult. But he said, though there will be tribulation, I've overcome the world. You, you need not be afraid. You need not fear. Well, let me wrap up uh, with this last um, point. We see how this chapter characterizes believers. And one of the things it says is in verse 6, where it says, And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And so the Antichrist is slandering God and slandering God's people. I mean, that's certainly what happened in the first century. Nero blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians. Uh, Even in our day and time, people are beginning to say, we'll never have an all-inclusive society as long as we have this Christian perspective on things because Christianity does not accept things like homosexuality and those other things. And so Christianity is seen as oppressive. Christianity is seen as a hindrance to this all-inclusiveness that everyone is pushing toward. And so um, what we see here in this um, verse, in verse 6, it talks about his tabernacle. And it's not talking about a literal building. It's talking about the people of God. It's that we are his tabernacle because God indwells us. And even though the people of God, at least many of us, are still on earth, um, we are citizens of heaven. And this is not our home. And we should not expect heaven on earth until Christ comes back. It's going to be hard, and it's going to be hard on us in different ways, but it does not mean that we're not being loved by God, and and it doesn't mean that we've been abandoned by God. He dwells in us. He dwells with us, and our citizenship is in heaven. It says in uh, Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our country, for many years, Christians could often say, "Ah, I hope Jesus doesn't come back too soon. I have other things I want to do. Uh, When things are really dark, you eagerly wait for a Savior. You can't wait for Jesus to come back. That's the way it works. Well, the second thing is in verse 7. It says, It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. In one sense, the book of Revelation says that we are overcomers. In 1 John, it says we overcome by faith. And in the beginning of Revelation, it talks about in each of the seven churches, Jesus says, to him who overcomes, this will be your reward. So in one sense, the book of Revelation says that we as believers in Jesus are overcomers. Our faith will overcome. And yet we may also be overcome. Overcome in what sense? We may actually have to die for our faith. We may actually have to suffer in really significant ways for our faith. Um, it says in Revelation 3:21, He overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. How did Jesus overcome? He who overcomes, as I overcame, will sit with me on my throne. 
being willing to die to do the, the will of God and to trust God even to the point of death. That's what it says in Revelation uh, 12. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. A faith that's willing to die because we say like Peter, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. You are life. Without you, I have nothing. To give up our physical lives is to hold on to what is truly life. Well, it also says in verse 8 that believers have their names written in the book of life. In verse 8 it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. In Revelation 17, 8, it actually says it a little more clear. Some people uh, wonder if uh, in verse 8 of this chapter, in verse thir- uh, chapter 13, whether or not um, from the foundation of the world goes with um, the lamb who has been slain or does it go with uh, your name being written in the book. In Revelation 17, 8, it actually says, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So it's even more clear that the reference is that those who believe in Jesus have had their name written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Why is that in there? Is that in there to keep anyone from believing in Jesus? No. Is that in there to keep us from saying, Jesus is an able and willing Savior for you? If you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you'll be saved. Is that meant to keep us from saying that? Is that meant to cause us to doubt Uh, whether or not we can believe and be saved because of this idea. No, it's in the midst of suffering. It's in the midst of saying that you're secure. It's meant to communicate as a believer in Jesus, the only reason why you believe is because God gave you the grace to believe and he chose to give you that grace before the foundation of the world. You will survive. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how hard it gets, God will carry you through. That's the implication of that. And it's meant to encourage us to uh, persevere. It says in verse 10, If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here's the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Uh, I think ESV translates, here's the call to perseverance and faith uh, by the saints. So, The idea is that there are things that are destined to happen. There is suffering that is destined to take place. All of us are going to suffer to one degree or another. Some of us may suffer in ways that others of us do not suffer. And in a very real sense, that's been ordained. And yet we can trust God with whatever suffering he's ordained for us. We can trust him to be with us, trust him to enable us to keep trusting him, to keep loving even through that suffering. And that's why there's a lot of talk about persevering. It says in Luke 18, the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. It says in James chapter 1, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And at the beginning of uh, the book, in Revelation 1, 9, John says, I, John, your brother and fellow 
partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. And so we're going to have tribulation, but we're also going to have a kingdom. And God's going to give us the grace to persevere that we might enjoy that kingdom. Obviously, God's going to give us the grace to trust in his sovereign goodness through all of this because we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose so that even though there is a devil in the details, even though it will get significantly worse before it gets infinitely better, the saints will go marching in. Guaranteed. It's a promise. He will carry us through. He will not leave us nor forsake us. Um, There's a movie that Jan and I went to a while back about Winston Churchill. Maybe some of you saw it called The Darkest Hour. It's about how um, Britain was wrestling with what to do about Nazi Germany and their um, takeover or attempted takeover of the world. And Winston Churchill rises to power through all of that. And um, I think there's a speech he gave um, after the time that the movie covered in which he says uh, in 1941, after things had been going a certain way for a while, he said this uh, to this group in a school, never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. That's exactly what Revelation 13 is meant to feel like, an overwhelming force of the enemy, a force that we cannot stand up against. Who can make war with the beast? Who can stand before him? Nobody apart from God. Nobody apart from those who are being ruled and reigned over by the Lamb. Uh, Winston Churchill goes on in that same speech to say, talking about how Britain responded to the Nazi threat, there was no flinching and no thought of giving in. I say that we can be sure that we have only to persevere to conquer. And this was at 1941. The war wasn't over yet. But he says we have only to persevere. And that's what um, is being said here in Revelation 13 as well. This is a call to the saints to persevere, to keep trusting and keep loving and not to lose sight of that. There's another movie which was about the true story of uh, uh, Louis Zamperini and the title of the movie was Unbroken. And um, someone was describing the movie and how he gets shot down during World War II and gets captured by the the Japanese. And there's a sadistic uh, camp uh, leader there who is just torturing him. And the way they described what was going on was this uh, guy wanted to break uh, Lewis's indomitable spirit. Who was being pictured there? Who was being manifested there? The devil. Now, at that point, he wasn't a Christian. He later on becomes a Christian. But it's a good picture of what is actually going on in the world. Satan wants to break us. 
Satan wants to destroy us. He wants to deceive us. He wants he wants us to lay down our trust in God and in Jesus and just give up and give over. The Bible says that we are to stand unbroken. We are to refuse to be broken. Now, the odd thing about it is you can't follow Jesus and not be broken. You just have to be broken over your sin and over your selfishness and over your pride. There's another sense in which we are to be unbroken in terms of our trust in God and his love for us and his promises and that there's nothing better than Jesus and that we're willing to lose everything to have Jesus. It's interesting, and I'll just close with this. In, In Luke 18... Jesus says, let me encourage you to keep praying and not faint. And then he tells a story about the widow and the judge, and you remember that. But at the end of it, he says, uh, God will bring about justice basically in a timely fashion. When the, when the time is right, God will show up and do what needs to be done. But then Jesus asked the question, um, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? To me, that's an interesting question. And it could be because of Revelation 13. And because there will be an attempt to extinguish faith on the earth. And yet in the end, it says that his reign, the reign of Satan through these beasts will be brief. And Jesus will come back and slay the beast and rescue his people. And we can trust him to do that. And so it says in Second Peter so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do, would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Pay attention to the prophetic word. It's like a light in the darkness that we're to hold on to. And that light says, I have loved you with an everlasting love and I will never stop loving you. And if you doubt that, don't look at your circumstances. Look at my son. Because God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we can think about what your word says. It is the voice of truth. Help us to choose and believe the voice of truth. Please help us. Please strengthen us. Grant us grace to be willing to suffer for the name of Jesus, whatever that might look like. And I pray that you would receive all the glory in our hearts and through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.